Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. If you're going to build your house to weather the storm, there's got to be a bigger reason than just you. Yeah, there's something much more going on here. There is a much greater purpose for you and for me to build our house. The Apostle Paul literally had the Damascus Road experience. You know, he's the guy that was the religious higher up, the religious elite, and he was determined to kill the Christians and to stop this Jesus movement. And it was on his way to do just that, starting in Damascus, when God met him on that road, knocked him off his horse, He had this experience with God and it changed him forever. He met Jesus. And that's when Saul really became Paul. Yeah, he had this experience and you know, Paul's legacy since then is this is the guy who has done more than any other person for our cause than Jesus himself. Paul's the guy that wrote out our theology. He's the one that built the theological structure uh, that we stand on today. He's the one that um, wrote so much of the New Testament. You know, he's the guy that wrote things like, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul's the guy that would take months-long, years-long missionary journeys where he would go from city to city, and when he left, he didn't know how long he was going to be gone. He was just obeying God. God, I'm going to go where you send me, and he would go, and he would preach. He would win people to Christ and plant churches. That was Paul's pattern. Proclaim the gospel. People get saved. Plant churches. That's what he saw over and over and over again in his life. And, and, you know, he would just go to a place until they put him in jail or kicked him out of town. So he would go to the next place and he would preach the gospel and people would get saved and they would plant churches. And Paul was determined, determined to spread the gospel. He knew there was nothing more important than proclaiming the gospel, people getting saved, and churches being planted. He knew that was the thing. That was his calling in life. That's what the church should be all about. So even though even though it was hard, even though it was difficult, he kept on going. Paul endured more than than maybe any other Christian, certainly at the time, uh, to be able to proclaim the gospel, see people get saved, and see churches be planted. He just kept going. Even though there were beatings, even though there was imprisonment, even though there was starvation, even though they did not, he did not have everything that he needed all the time, even though he was um, whipped, even though he was shipwrecked, even though he had snake bites, no matter what happened, Paul kept going. Might have gotten discouraging for someone like me. I might have quit at some point, but Paul kept going. He was so consumed by this mission that God had put him on. He was so consumed by the fact that he had the one message of hope that he couldn't stop. 
that no matter what happened, Paul kept going. And today, he's the most influential Christian behind Jesus. I don't know how you think about Paul. When I think of Paul, I kind of tend to think of, you know, lone Paul. He's traveling around all by himself, doing this all on his own. But, you know, history tells us that Paul was not alone. You know, he always had a, a team with him and a team behind him. Paul, everywhere he went uh, in proclaiming the gospel, seeing people saved and planting churches, he always had a team with him and a team behind him. In fact, there was a really, really important group of people. One of the churches that he planted was the church at Philippi, and they were his closest comrades in this whole thing. These people understood what their role was in this big picture. They weren't all about themselves. They were about proclaiming the gospel, seeing people get saved, and seeing churches planted. They knew that's what the calling of the church, the body of Christ, is. And so they were all in on it, and they supported Paul like nobody else would. It was that group of people that were his team. It was that group of people that was the team behind him, that church at Philippi. Toward the end of his life, Paul finds himself imprisoned in Rome. Now, I just want to be clear, it wasn't like deep, dark dungeon prison. He had had his fair share of that. But in Rome, it was a little bit more like comfortable prison. Paul found himself in house prison where he was confined and detained in his house, but he could have guests and he could conduct business as long as he stayed in his home. And so here toward the end of his life, he's He's, he's in, imprisoned in Rome, and while he's there, you find that he writes this long, very personal thank you letter to his team, to his people at the church in Philippi. And he starts the letter off by, you know, hey, this letter's from Paul, and I'm writing to you, church at Philippi, and then here's what he says to them. In Philippians 1, he says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Can you hear the affection in Paul's writing every time I think of you? I'm always praying for you. You are my people, and I'm so grateful that you understand your role in all this. It's all about proclaiming the gospel, people getting saved, and planting churches. Yeah, he was all about it because they were all about it. They understood their role, that they weren't just, you know, a church that kind of got Facebook updates from Paul as he went around, uh, going around the world, but they were all in. They were sharing in all of this, proclaiming the gospel, people coming to Christ and churches being planted. They understood it because they had been there, right? The world was dark. The world was dark and lost and even dying. And they understood because they had just been there. They knew that they had been dark, dying, and lost also. 
like you and like me. They understood that at one time they were separated from God because of the sin in their own lives. And that this separated them from him, put them under darkness and put them under God's wrath and judgment. That they had death coming because that's what they deserved. They were criminals against a holy God. They recognized that. And they saw that in the dark world all around them. And they knew that Paul was carrying the light, that he was proclaiming the gospel. And when he proclaimed the gospel, people would get saved. And when people got saved, Paul would plant churches. They knew they were all about that. They were all in on this. I see that whole thing now going on today. Are we all in on this? Do we see the darkness all around us? I, mean, I can't help, but every time you look around, you see the darkness all around us. In fact, today, it doesn't just feel like it's lost and dying. Today, it feels like something is about to explode. It feels like everything is coming apart at the seams today. Am I right? It feels like it's more than just our culture on a decline. It feels like everything is about to just fall to pieces all around us. You see it on the news. You you see it in our media, you see it in the culture, I see it everywhere and it's unnerving and it makes me worried, worried about the darkness all around us. I mean, I see it in the fentanyl that's now the number one killer of adults in America and young people also that's gone crazy. I see it in the broken homes where most children in some communities are being raised without a dad at home just in brokenness. I see it in the broken hearts and the disillusionment around us. I see it in the millions of aborted babies every year right here in America. I see it in the poverty. I see it in the immigration issues. I see it in the inflation. I see it everywhere I look. It's dark. It's dying. In fact, what I'd like to say is, it's the first blank on your page. If you're following along, we're going down fast. We are going down fast. Society seems to be crumbling all around us. And for the most part, it feels like there's nothing we can do about it. For the most part, most Christians feel like there's just nothing we can do about it. There's just nothing we can do. And so what do most Christians, how do most Christians respond? We look and we see this all around us. And so what do we do? We, we, just, we just plan to vote in the next election as if somehow there was gonna be a political solution to our very spiritual problem. Right, so what do we do? We, we, we feel like there's nothing we can do. So. So what we do is we tend to live a little bit in denial about this, don't we? We kind of try to hide from it. We kind of try to act like I see no evil, hear no evil, la, 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 I don't want to hear, don't want to hear about it. So we turn off the news, you know, or we get off Facebook. Or we run to the alcohol or the drugs or the bad behaviors, right? Or, or, or we busy ourselves up. Right, we keep ourselves ridiculous busy. We're always on the ball fields, always at the basketball courts with the kids, or, or we're always running from here to there, just anything to occupy my life. Or we hide out in the deer stand or on the golf course. Right, come on, <laughs> yeah. 
or we do whatever we can. We just do whatever we can to kind of hide out and live in denial. And today, today, I'm gonna ask you to do something different than living in denial and hiding. Okay, so just get ready because I'm gonna ask you to do something different because I believe there is hope for this dark, dying world. I believe there truly is hope for us. Unfortunately for many of us, we have misplaced our hope. We actually think, well, our hope is in what's coming up in November. You know, we'll have a Republican sweep and that'll fix everything, right? Or we hope that it'll be okay here because we live in the rural South. So it'll be okay here for at least a while. Or we have hope in our Second Amendment rights. They come for me, you know, you know, they'll have something to worry about. Or we believe that we have hope in our traditions or our institutions or whatever it is. And some of these things, some of these things are good things. I'm not saying these are all bad things, but I'm saying that none of them, none of them are good if they are used to avoid our house building responsibility. We're called to build our house on the firm foundation and not place our hope in anything in this world because there is no thing in this world that will give us hope. There's nothing here that can solve this problem. There's nothing here that's gonna make it any better. We need a solution from somewhere else. We need a solution from outside this world. And you and I have already found that solution, right? Yes. We know that it's dark and dying and we're all separated from God and under his wrath and his judgment. But the hope is that God wrapped himself in flesh, came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ that Jesus came here and revealed to us the kingdom of God. He taught us what the kingdom of God is really all about. He talked to us and what would it look like if you actually lived in the kingdom of God? He healed, he restored, and this perfect man who had no crimes against God of his own to pay for, went to the cross and he didn't know God anything. So he took on what we owed God. He took on our debt, my guilt on himself. And on the cross, he paid it in full. He died in my place. He paid my debt. He paid your debt. And he died for me so that I might live. He died on the cross. And here's the thing about Jesus. Here's the thing about Jesus. He didn't stay dead proving that his sacrifice was good enough. He rose from the dead and now today he lives and he stands at his father's right hand in heaven and he lives in me and in you to be the light of the world so that he can work through me and you to proclaim the gospel so that people will get saved and so that churches will be planted, am I right? And that's the hope of the world. The light of the world is Jesus Christ, and our hope is him. In fact, here's what I want to say, next blank on your page. It's the gospel, that gospel that empowers us to stand. It's the gospel that empowers us to stand. It's the gospel, the hope, it's the gospel that allows us to build our house. And here's the kicker. We, the church, 
are the only ones on the planet that have this message of hope. The government doesn't have it. The school systems don't have it. You're not gonna find it in the news media. You won't see it on Netflix. It belongs to the church and it is solely our job to proclaim the good news so that people will be saved and churches will be planted. Our message is better than any message Disney could ever produce. Our message is a better message than our federal government could ever contrive, right? Our message is a way better message than any Democrat or Republican ever dreamed of. Our message is better than science and technology messages. Our message is better than the environmentalists and the social revolutionaries. Our message is the only message that will bring life out of death. Our message is the only message that turns darkness into light, right? Our message is the only message that will bring in the rule and the reign of God, the kingdom of God here on earth. Am I right? It's our message. It's our message. This is who the church is. We're not just some institution where you come and you watch a show. We are the expression of God in the world today. And our role is to preach the gospel so that people will be saved and churches will be planted. So that those churches will preach the gospel and people will get saved and churches will be planted. Am I right? That's what the kingdom of God is starting to look like. What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? Next blank on your page. The kingdom of God is where God reigns. It's where God is in charge, in control. It's right here. It's in you and it's in me. The kingdom of God is right here. Jesus himself got it started. Mark tells us that he began his ministry with this simple message. He started preaching. This is what he said. Jesus says, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe in the good news. So the kingdom of God is near. It's coming. It comes at the cross and the resurrection. So the way you enter it is repent and believe. That's the whole package right there. Jesus got it started in those early believers, Paul, Peter, James, John, all those other ones, they expanded it out. They were all about proclaiming it and spreading it as far as they could. In fact, you get all the way to the end of the book of Acts and the very last sentence in the book of Acts, Acts 28, says that at the end of his life, Paul is imprisoned there in Rome and what do we find him doing? He's boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and no one tried to stop him. The end, that's how Acts ends, right there. That's what he's doing, he's, he's still alive and all he's doing is proclaiming the kingdom of God and nobody tried to stop him. And people kept getting saved and churches kept getting planted. And then the gospel was proclaimed some more and more people got saved and more churches planted all the way down to today where you and I were birthed to be in on that. The gospel proclaimed, 
people getting saved, and churches being planted. That's why we exist. So, so I'm asking you, next blank on your page, am I going to church or am I being the church? Am I a spectator or am I a participant? You know, church isn't something that you were created to watch. That's football. Don't be confused. You're not designed to be a spectator in this. You're designed to be on the field. You aren't a spectator. You are a team player. And we are all on a team that's fighting against the army of darkness, pushing it back to redeem the world around us to Christ. That's why Paul writes his thank you letter to the church at Philippi, because they understood this. They got it. They were all in on it. So he writes, let's look at it again. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. That means church at Philippi, you know what you're here for. You know what you're in on. And you're in this for the big game. You're in this for the long game. Sure, you're not me. You're not necessarily out on the bleeding edge like I am. I'm Paul. Not everybody can be Paul, but you still get it. You understand it. You know that this is all about proclaiming the gospel, people getting saved, and churches being planted. And so you are all in on this. And so the church was all about supporting Paul in his ministry, praying for him, sending him encouraging letters, funding that ministry, sending him the supplies that he needed whenever they needed to do that. They were all in on that. They knew why they existed. It's the same exact reason that the Orchard Church exists. You know, this church started in 2009, meeting in a little bitty living room of a log cabin. And we started out just with small little group meetings, but we grew and we grew. And by Easter of that year, we launched our first official public worship service in the old movie theater on Maddox Road. Not the new one you go to now that's all beautiful, but the smelly, nasty, ugly old one that's on Maddox Road. It's closed down now. Um, but man, we would, uh, we would go in there and we would work it. I'm telling you, the movie theater at the time, it was like 40 years old, 30, 40 years old, and it stunk to high heaven. It was awful. And we would go in there every Saturday night after the last showing was over, 11, 11.30, and we would work it for hours. We would mop and spray and scrub and clean to try to just de-stink it a little bit, you know? It was sticky and gross. There were milk duds melted to every surface. There were rat nests, I'm not kidding, everywhere. It was awful, it was awful. But we would clean it up as much as we can and stage our equipment in there. So we'd kind of move in and clean up on Friday, sorry, Saturday nights. And we'd get out of there usually around one o'clock in the morning. 
only to be back at 7 a.m. the next morning. And that's when we started putting everything together. Staging, sound, wire up all the sound, bring all the stuff in, lights, hanging lights. We'd have to move completely in every single Sunday. And we'd have a church service in there on Sunday. See the lights we'd hang? Yeah. Um, back in the day. Some of you guys remember that those days way back when. And then we'd have to have it all cleared out. Everything had to come back out again so that they could show the early matinee on Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. And so I'd get home and just collapse at the end of all that every single week and then do it again. Why? Because it's all about proclaiming the gospel so that people can get saved and churches can be planted. That's what it's all about. It's why we do this. That's why we did this crazy, insane stuff all the time. The owner of the theater at the time, the first owner when we got there, uh, did not believe in maintaining the theater, I guess, much himself. And one day he was looking at me and I was just talking to him and he said, you know, I don't understand it, but the side y'all meet in, there's two, it's a two stall theater, right? So he's like, the side y'all meet in just smells a lot better than the other side. I don't know why. And then he sold the theater to somebody else, and they were wonderful. Anyway, so we did that for a long time, and then we finally got a big upgrade when we moved to the L.J. Elementary School. And there we had an upgrade, but we did the same kind of thing. Didn't have to get in there on Saturday night, but we bought road cases and trailers, and every Sunday morning we were moving these heavy, heavy road cases out of two trailers into the building, and we had crews of people setting up all over in the auditorium and around in the children's ministry spaces and in the uh, open areas. There's Saber Marks making coffee right there. Um, so we would do all this stuff every week. We had to build the screens. Uh, we had to put in the lights. We literally rolled out the carpets. Uh, we set up children's ministry areas. Uh, there's John Crawford running sound right there, happy about it. Uh, as you can see, there's Steve Marks teaching uh, kids in our kid zone, everything. It was just a crazy, crazy thing that we did every week, moving in, putting up curtains, setting up kid stuff. And then we'd move back out again at the end. It was, it was exhausting. It was crazy. But that's kind of what it looked like for a long time at the elementary school. There's David Felker. Look at, look at David Felker. He was here in the early service this morning. And all the rest of us has, have aged 10 years except for David. He looks exactly the same today as he did 10 years ago. And he was 28 right there. Um, <laughs> So we had a great upgrade there in the, in the school and it was fantastic. And then finally God opened a door and he made it possible for us to come here to this location, our semi-permanent home. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so good because most weeks we don't have to get in here and work it. We did this week, right? Jeff, Jeff was in here in the early service. He's probably passed out now because uh, he was hanging lights and everything all week. Uh, and we got carpet. Did you like the carpet by the way? You know, so we, we moved into this place and we've redone the outside and, you know, we've just, we've done so much and it's so tempting. It's so tempting to get here and to go, okay, we got our home. <sighs> we've arrived. We're done now. We, we can just meet every week and be happy. But no. Because the truth of the matter is we aren't done yet. We're just getting started. 
Am I right? We're just getting started. I believe that this ministry's biggest, most exciting days are not in the rearview mirror, but through the windshield. I don't believe they're behind us, they're in front of us. And so I wanna kinda call you a little bit to that. I wanna ask you to do something besides live in denial and hide. And I want you to live towards the future because I know you look around and it can be depressing. I know it can be depressing when you see your kids, your adult kids who want nothing to do with Christ. And they don't want to hear a word of it out of you. I know it can be depressing when you, when you look at your kids, your young kids, friends, and you see what they're becoming, and you're praying that your kid doesn't become that. I know it can be sad when you look in the news media and you watch thousands of people march in favor of murdering unborn children by the millions. I know it can be depressing when you look at the statistics. The Pew Research Organization uh, released a study and they showed um, some really troubling data for America and for the West. So I got a graph here, uh, and this is a graph of Americans who identify as Christians. This isn't Christians in America, it's Americans who say, well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm an Episcopalian, or I'm a Methodist, I go to church, or I'm one of them, or I've been to a non-denominational church. You know, there, there are people who will say, yeah, I'm kind of with them, and they may or may not actually be with us. It's just people who identify. Does that make sense? So you can see here uh, on the axis, you got our percentage of the American population, and here you got a graph bar for every 10 years. And you can see that in the 1900s, we were doing great. Most Americans affiliated with us. But then something happened after the turn of the century, and all of a sudden there's been this steep decline to today. Today, uh, we've dropped from 80 to 90% down to 64% of Americans say, I'm one of them. And the Pew Research Center has, um, they've gone ahead and given us a projection of the next several decades and look at the decline that they are predicting. So much so that by the time we get to 2072, they're saying that only 35% of Americans will even say, yeah, I'm one of them. And if you ask me, the amount of actual Christians are far smaller than the graph seems to indicate. Now, I know some of you guys are like me. You're thinking, well, they just took a trend line and they're just extending it down. Easy to do that. Anybody can do that. Doesn't really mean much. No, um, that's not true because there's some other deeper disturbing stuff here. If you look at the next graph, this is a graph of young Americans remaining Christians. In 1990, if you were a kid who had been raised in a Christian home, about 90% of those kids stayed Christian, stayed Christian when they were adults. They are now Christian adults. But in 2020, only 65% of kids raised in Christian homes will identify as Christians as adults. Something is troubling here. Do you see this? And it's worse for people not raised in Christian homes. Only 44% in 1990, 44% of young people actually became Christians after their teenage years. But today, only 21% 
of people who exit their teenage years become Christians. Do you see that this is deeply troubling and depressing? No wonder we feel like there's nothing we can do. No wonder we try to kind of hide out from it. It's easy to be depressed because all the stats tell us that our team might in fact be losing. But I want to tell you something. Ready? I just want to tell you something. This is an incredible moment for us to be alive because right now, today, around the world, outside of the West, around the world, Christianity is growing faster now than at any time in history. It's growing and expanding more all around the world than it ever, ever, ever has. In other words, there are more new Christians today than at any other day in history. Christianity, the light, the gospel is being proclaimed and people are being saved and churches are being planted at a higher level than at any time ever in history. You look at China, you look at Asia in general, you look at Latin America and you look at Africa and you see this astonishing explosion of the gospel. In fact, in Africa, uh, in Africa, you see that in 1900, there were fewer than 9 million Christians in Africa. Today, however, there are over 541 million Christians in Africa. Come on. That's crazy. In the last 15 years alone, the church in Africa has increased by 51%. That's 33,000 new Christians per day in Africa right now. Whoa, what? That's crazy. What about that? Some of you guys might be going, well, yeah, isn't that a lot of Catholic? Aren't a lot of Catholic people? Is Catholic church growing there? Well, yeah, in Latin America, the Catholic church is really growing fast. That's true. But not like, not like Protestant churches, not like evangelical churches like ours. In fact, the reality today is that today, 70% of evangelical Christians live outside the United States. Most of us are not here. And the team is pushing the ball down the field all around the world. You look at South Korea. In 1920, there were 300,000 Christians in South Korea. Today, look at this, there are 12 million Christians in South Korea. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's a quarter of their population today. Something is changing in South Korea. In China, this is kind of secret, but in China, there are about 45,000 people coming to Christ per day in China. Hey, that's 280,000 people per week. That means 1.2 million new Christians per month in China. 14 and a half million new Christians per year in that communist oppressive nation. Yeah, and that praise the Lord. And I believe, I believe that if God can do it there, he can do it right here. If God can do it in communist oppressive China, he can do it right here. And if he's gonna do it, He's gonna do it through the church. He's gonna do it through the body of Christ. He ain't gonna do it through our president. He's not gonna do it through our institutions. He's not gonna use Disney to win the world to Christ. 
We have the message that changes darkness to light. We have the message that brings life from death. We are the only organization that will bring the reign and the rule of the kingdom of God. It's us. It's us. It's me. It's you. It's us. Is he starting now? Are, are we maybe, maybe starting to see it? Because I know the stats look bad. But here we are in the rural south, in a tiny little community, in a small, small little church. But right here, right here, in this little bitty church, so far this year, we've seen 55 people become new Christians this year alone so far. Praise the Lord. Right here, Sundays, Fridays, we're seeing people come to know Christ. Wednesdays, we're seeing people come to know Christ. 55 so far, just right here in this little bitty spot. And that doesn't even count Guatemala, where Sergio Perez has us hooked up with some church planting pastors that we support in their gospel preaching efforts. We were there, uh, not this August, but last August uh, down there with them. And that doesn't count Kenya, where Justin Chadwick has us hooked up with church planting pastors preaching the gospel in Kenya. Dude, this is my wife and Joyce Chadwick uh, together with a bunch of kids in the school in one of the communities that one of these church plants is in. And that school is made of mud and dung. But the gospel is being proclaimed there and people are coming to Christ. Praise the Lord. Just a few weeks ago, we had nine baptisms right out here on the turf on Super Tailgate Sunday. Nine people who had given their lives to Christ got baptized that Sunday. Praise the Lord. And I got to give a big shout out to Stephen Mansell. I'm so glad we brought Stephen on this year because he's done such an incredible job. Yeah, he's doing a great job here. Some, some of the way God's been using Stephen in our midst is he's taken our youth group that he kind of inherited at the beginning of the year, small, small handful, just a few kids coming on Wednesday nights. And now they're running 50 on Wednesday nights. Dude, that's exponential growth right now. And there's kids coming to Christ through that ministry, praise the Lord. Just a few weeks ago, they, they worked together with community youth leaders and they packed this room the heck out. And they saw this room filled with kids praising Jesus and kids coming to Christ right here on a Wednesday night. Not only that, but Stephen has really worked it to help us launch five new life groups. We launched five new life groups at Super Tailgate Sunday. What that means for us is that right now, the Orchard Church has more people loving God and loving others in life group than ever before. We got more life groups and we got more people involved in life groups. We have over 200 people involved in life groups now. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's more than we've ever had. And so thank you, Stephen, for, for doing that. Stephen gets it. He knows that we're all about proclaiming the gospel, people getting saved, and planting churches. That's what it's all about. Do you get it? Do you understand it? Because I think God might just want to be doing something next. I think we might be seeing a spark of spiritual awakening, a spark of maybe revival here, maybe right here in our little community in the mountains. 
And maybe he wants to call the next Paul. And maybe he wants to send somebody out to do something. I'm asking you, I'm asking you to stop hiding, to stop living in denial, and to do something about this, to, to be the church. I know, I know, probably if I asked the question, is there a Paul in the room? I know I'd probably see a lot of this. Well, I hope not right here, not me. I can't write theology. I can't preach sermons. I can't win people to Christ. I'm sure not. I can't go for years at a time on mission trips. Okay. Well, here's my encouragement to you. Why do you think you have to be a Paul? Because maybe God didn't make you a Paul. Probably not. For every Paul, there's a Philippi. For every Paul, there's a team of people loving him and supporting him. I got to think about this. I got to think about this letter that he writes, this thank you letter that he writes to the church at Philippi. Why did he write this letter? Sure, he's at the end of his life and they've supported him through all this and he's grateful. But there was a trigger for him to write this letter. And the thing was that the church at Philippi, who had been getting updates from Paul, knew that he needed some stuff. Now he's in prison in Rome. He needs clothes. He needs food. He needs money. He needs help. And so they said, okay, we, Paul is our guy, but we got to send stuff to him. And it's a hundreds of mile journey. And so they're like, who can we send? And they sent a guy named Epaphroditus. Paul writes about him, gives him a shout out in Philippians 2. He says, meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. By the way, if you haven't thought of your next kid's name yet, <laughs> that kid will never get made fun of in elementary school ever. Epaphroditus. So he says, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, a coworker, a fellow soldier. He was your messenger to help me in my need. Who's Epaphroditus? I don't know. You see, all we really know about Epaphroditus is he got a shout out from Paul. Paul mentions him a couple of times in this one letter, in his thank you letter to the church at Philippi. History tells us nothing about Epaphroditus before this and nothing about him after. He's just a guy. When the church was ready to send Paul support to make sure that the gospel kept being proclaimed, that people kept being saved and churches kept being planted, they're like, Paul's the guy on the bleeding edge, but somebody's got to get him the stuff. And as far as we know, Epaphroditus had no theological training. We don't know if he had any special gifts or abilities. As far as we know, Epaphroditus is just a guy who said, you know, dude, I can carry stuff to Paul. I may not be able to preach. I may not be able to write, but I can carry stuff. If it means the gospel being proclaimed, people being saved, and churches being planted, I can carry stuff. And so Epaphroditus goes on this journey to take stuff to Paul. Paul writes this thank you letter, and then Epaphroditus delivers it back to the church. And today, we have a significant part of the New Testament because Epaphroditus said, I can carry stuff. 
I just wonder how many more Epaphroditus's might just be in the room. You know, I'm not, I'm not asking you to think about becoming an elder. I'm asking you to carry something because there's lots of ways here in the church that something just needs to be carried. I'm not asking you to host a life group or to lead a team. I'm just asking you to be an Epaphroditus. I'm asking you, as Paul wrote to that church in Philippi, to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his, his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. I'm just asking you to have the same attitude that Christ had. The same attitude that Steve has, same attitude that John has. Now that I think about it, not the same attitude Steve has. <laughs> but to say yes to him, yes, I can carry something. Would you be willing to help out in some little way? Because our, our teams, I've asked our teams to let me know, how can somebody just show up and carry something for a little bit? I'm not asking for a long-term commitment. Maybe, maybe you could just come and help Jeff out with lights and tech a little bit. We could use some help with people who would be willing to push some buttons a little bit, you know, and move some levers, carry something. Our youth group needs meals provided for them on Wednesday nights. I'm not asking you to come every Wednesday night and prepare a meal, but could you make sure we got pizza for them next week? Or could you do spaghetti or something for them one night? Our Celebrate Recovery ministry needs meals provided for them on Friday nights. And we've got a team that does that, but sometimes they just need a break. They do a fantastic, indescribable job, and their food is really good here on Fridays, but they could use some assistance on off nights, would you help them? Maybe you could make coffee on Sunday mornings or maybe, maybe you could just help people find a parking spot and get to the building. You know, just you, maybe you could just carry something because there's all kinds of ways that you can step it up and become an Epaphroditus. Stop hiding and living in denial and let's do something about this. Come on, yeah. Let's don't, let's don't be afraid anymore. Let's don't just resign ourselves to the cultural demise. Let's be bold and let's do something. God says that he has not given us, in 2 Timothy, not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. So he calls us to use what we got, even if it's just a little bit. In Romans 12, Paul writes, in his grace, God's given all of us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God's given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God's given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is, thank you, Betsy. Thank you for teaching well. If your gift is, um, I lost my place. Yeah, here it is. If your gift is encouraging others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God's given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously.
And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. If your gift is helping people get parked, help them. If your gift is providing meals, provide a meal. If your gift is making coffee, make coffee. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Stop being lazy. That's the Steve translation right there. But work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. See, I believe this is how God works. Every Paul's got a Philippi. And maybe you're not one of those guys, but maybe you can carry something. Let's, let's do this. I'd like to invite you. Here's how I'd like to invite you to respond. After the service is over, not right now, but after we sing our songs and pray and dismiss, I'd like to invite you to join some of our team leaders right outside this door. We have got our dot life connection point all set up right out here for you this morning. Even if you don't know that you've got a place to serve, just come out and look at the pretty purple banners. They're awesome. But just come right on out here and just talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm looking for something to carry. I can carry something next week. I can carry something next month. I can carry something twice a month. Just put me in. I, I want to be an Epaphroditus. And just say, I will get it. I know that I'm part of a much bigger picture. I know this isn't all about me. I know this is about proclaiming the gospel so that people can be saved and churches will be planted. My question for you, will you come out there and join us? My question for you is last blank on your page. Do you get it? Do you understand what you're really here for?